Hey there, friends, and welcome back to another episode of the Euphoria Health Podcast. For any new listeners out there, my name is Matt Sapala, and I am your host. I created this platform and created the Euphoria Health community to help promote sustainability in all the pillars of our life. Personally, I battled an extremely unhealthy relationship with food and exercise for almost five years and fell into the social norm trap, which is known as the diet culture. I then knew that enough was enough and decided to change my mindset through tons and tons of education and falling off the bandwagon a few times. It enabled me to really grasp and understand what healthy living truly was. I don't pretend that that wasn't tough because it was extremely challenging and it was really hard to reverse habits that were ingrained in me for a long time but this wild ride as I mentioned before has taught me so many amazing lessons. I now apply all of these lessons I've learned over the past few years to my coaching philosophy. I feel like this wild ride is an ever-growing platform for me to learn and understand people's experiences and I'm forever grateful for that opportunity. I now educate and inspire my clients to take control of their own health through the power of movement. I don't want to be your quick fix, I want to be your only fix. My why is so strong and I'm so grateful that I have this platform to share this message with people from all over the This week's special guest, Megan Sinclair, really aligns with everything I just said. She's a provisional psychologist and currently completing a master's in clinical psychology. Amongst all that, she's a big advocate for creating sustainable habits. Mental health and well-being is a really hot topic and it's incredible to see the conversation around this starting to become quote-unquote normalised. This crazy year has definitely taken a toll and having Megan come on the show and share her wisdom about how the brain works was so insightful. A big topic of conversation this week was diet culture. So diet culture essentially means adopting restrictive and unsustainable habits chasing the physical perception of what society deems to be healthy. This is a trap that I, amongst many others, fell into and people to fall into each and every day. It was great to have Megan come on the show and break down the diet culture and really help us dig deeper and ask ourselves why. Digging deeper can sometimes be really uncomfortable, but boy, it's where a lot of growth happens. Megan, thank you so much for giving us an insight into the realm of psychology and helping us dig deeper and break down the social stigma associated with ill mental health and in particular, eating disorders. As Megan and I unpacked a complex and potentially triggering topic being distorted eating, if you resonate with anything in this episode, please don't hesitate to reach out to the organisation I have added in the show notes. Also guys, don't forget to reach out and let myself and Megan know that you're listening and what you thought of the episode. Thank you for tuning in and I hope you enjoyed this one as much as I did. Megan Sinclair, welcome to the Weekly Dose of Euphoria podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. 
Yeah, so pumped to have you on the show. Today's topic is really, really interesting. And I guess it's a real passion project of both of ours, but I'm really pumped to get into that. Megan, I just had the best view of George, which is your your dog. He's <laughs> the most beautiful thing ever. For the listeners at home that can't see the picture, paint the paint the picture of what George is and, and, and um, how big he is. He's so beautiful. He's a big boy. Um... He weighs about 60 kilos, if that gives you any idea. Um, he's a dude border, so he's that big droopy face, really sweet looking dog. Um, yeah, he's so gorgeous. <laughs> I love featuring our little furry friends on the podcast. It gives a nice little warm start, so I love it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Now, Megan, I guess it's really important to set the scene by explaining your background and what sparked your interest in, you know, psychology and, and how the brain works. Yeah, so I went into psychology pretty well straight from high school. Um, so it was my favourite subject in high school. Um, and I suppose I was always really fascinated about just human behaviour and how different we all are. Um, I thought that was really interesting. And then I was just obviously obsessed with the brain um, and how it works and how um, variable it is across all of us. Um, in high school as well, I also said to my career counsellor, I said, I really want to pursue a career in psychology. And she, she said to me, she said, um, I don't think you'll find work in that. I don't think that's a very good career for you. So that sort of enabled me a little bit more um, and just really sort of fueled my fire. Um, and then lucky when I did get to uni, I absolutely loved it and I knew that I'd made the right choice. Um, so yeah, over my undergraduate year, I just wanted to keep learning and keep um, increasing my knowledge. Um, and it's a huge passion of mine and I know that I'm in the right spot. So yeah, that's definitely. <laughs> and it's so evident through everything that you're doing, your, your bleeding passion and the things that you're promoting and the content that you're producing is just incredible. And it's really, really evident that you just want to help people thrive. And I love that. And I guess touching on your topic before the, the topic of psychology, and I guess the human body as a whole is such a complex thing to, to try and grasp and, and it's ever growing. You're, you're constantly going to be a student of life um, is how I refer to it. So it's a really, really great field. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's exactly right. So in my undergraduate, I sort of got to my third year. And when you go into your honours year, which is your fourth year in psychology, it's very research focused. Um, and there was always this mention that psychology was quite holistic and now exercise and nutrition and gut health and things like that sort of affect our mental health. But there wasn't a large research base for it. So I sort of took two years off and sort of waited for the research to come through a little bit um, because I knew that's what I wanted to pursue um, and then jumped in the research slide when um, it sort of met that. Um, so when it was sort of there with the gut health and things like that. So I wanted to jump into my honours year knowing that I wanted, would be researching something that was exciting to me and I could, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, what sparked your passion for, for health overall, Megan? Were you always interested in, in sort of like exercise and nutrition growing up or was there a, a specific point in your life where you started shifting your focus? Mm, so I suppose growing up, I had quite um, a healthy lifestyle. Our parents were always 
getting us out doing huge hikes and we're always outside doing activities so um we sort of had this love for nature and they I always used to hate when we go to the Melbourne show or something that mum would pack really healthy lunches for us I used to say like oh why can't we go get the donuts or something like that but looking back um I can see that we always had a very healthy lifestyle and mum and dad um, sort of promoted a really good balance of nutrition for us. So, yeah, I suppose I grew up with it um, and then I just sort of naturally got into it a little bit more. Um, I even did my PT course in a gap year that I took in between undergrad and postgrad. So I've always had that passion there for it. Yeah, love it, Megan. And I guess, you know, being immersed in that sort of health realm growing up, it sort of developed your belief systems and it developed your um, knowledge base to be able to explore further knowledge in that area as well. And I think that's really crucial. On that note, I think it's a great segue into you discussing more about how we develop our belief system. Is it a collation of experiences that we you know, experience throughout our life or is there something further that happens when we develop our belief systems? Yeah, so our belief systems, Systems are always constantly evolving. So we set the foundation for our belief systems within our first relationship and that relationship is usually with our primary caregivers. Um, so they sort of set the foundations and give us the basic teachings um, for our belief systems. And then once we sort of get a little bit older, we come into contact with education providers and a few more environmental stimuli and it sort of builds on those foundations a little bit um and then when we sort of reach adolescence or become a young adult we become a little bit more conscious um, and a little bit more aware of our belief systems um, and we might come into contact with some environmental stimuli that sort of challenges those belief systems um, and we can sort of experience i suppose like this inner conflict um, between what we were taught and what we're sort of experiencing now. So you can go through a process of unlearning information and then relearning information as well. Um, and then as we age, we come into contact with pivotal life events um, and experiences that can, I suppose, create and reinforce um, existing beliefs and then new beliefs as well. Um, so that's sort of the process. I don't think we ever have um, one concrete belief system. I think it's just ever evolving and it's just sort of a product of um, our environmental experiences and things like that. Yeah, I think that's a perfect summary there, Megan. And, and I guess, you know, me personally looking back on, on through my childhood and, and I guess all of my listeners would know I was quite overweight as a child and, and went through a transformation phase. But anyway, going back and, and looking at your belief systems and how they've evolved is incredible. And I guess it's really not as common as what we are led to believe to go back and really reflect on our childhood and really dig deeper and sort of find that path to how we developed those belief systems and how they've evolved over time. It's such an interesting space. Mm, yeah, yeah, absolutely agree. It's so fascinating. Once we've developed these belief systems, you touched on it before, how does our mind process this sort of information? What happens on a cellular level and how do we, I guess this touching into more memory, but how do we utilise these experiences and then develop belief systems from them, if that makes sense? Yeah, 
Yeah, so I suppose memory is the main one. Um, and then we also have like a process of reinforcement. So when we do something that we find pleasurable, um, our reward systems in the brain sort of activate and we get this release of dopamine, which is our feel-good um, neurotransmitter. Um, and that sort of reinforces us to do things. Um, and I suppose pleasurable... Typically speaking, pleasurable is something that is life-sustaining. Um, so something like eating healthy, drinking water, having sex and being in loving, um, nurturing relationships as well. Um, so we want to keep doing those activities because they help us live um, and sustain life. Um, so we continue to do what makes us feel good, I suppose. Um, and I mentioned before that sometimes in adolescence we get this inner conflict um, with our beliefs. And also in adolescence we have this, I suppose, upregulation of the need for dopamine. So we have like a higher threshold that we need to use, um, we need to meet, sorry. Um, so sometimes we need more stimulation to reach those levels. So that can see us seek out different environmental experiences, whether it be um, like taking drugs and alcohol, risk-taking, um, eating lots of fast food and sugars and like uh, video games and things like that because it helps us reach that dopamine threshold, I suppose. Um, and then after adolescence, it sort of levels back out once we've gone through puberty and things like that. So that's sort of how we... I suppose, maintain our beliefs and how we have new experiences and things like that. Yeah. I guess from a another point of view, does the ability to seek gratification and accepting gratification for the things that you're doing from others play a pivotal role in that as well? Does that also um, contribute? Yeah, absolutely. It definitely helps reinforce um, our beliefs and behaviours and things like that because obviously gratification is one of those things that helps us feel really good and if we feel really good we want to do it over and over and over again um so yeah it definitely plays a huge role and what are some typical ways that we would seek gratification from people i know it's quite transformed these days with social media but what are some typical ways that um that we seek gratification i guess just to paint a picture for the listeners at home mm, gratification i suppose nowadays it can be things like compliments from other people. Um, it can be like a like on Instagram or sharing of stories or things like that, really basic things that we probably don't think um, enable people to um, continue to do those behaviours. So, yeah, it can be something really simple like that. Yeah, I really wanted to highlight that point, Megan, before we take it any further, because gratification plays such an important role, specifically with social media. It's funny, that's that's almost the forefront of social media to get gratification from people that you may not, you know, necessarily get it from in a standard conversation. So yeah, really important to highlight those points before I guess we take it any further. Mm, yeah. Um... I think it's also about how we speak about ourselves as well. Um, I suppose to give you an example, um, once I went to Bali with a couple of my girlfriends and also our partners as well. 
And before we had gone to Bali, I'd said in like a group message, something really simple like, oh, it's six weeks to Bali. I really need to start cleaning up my diet and want to just increase my exercise habits and things like that, which was quite harmless um, in saying that. But what I didn't realise, I suppose, is the effects that it has on other people. And me speaking about myself in that way um, and saying like, oh, I might need to tone up my body or something like that. Um, you don't realise how much it plays on other people as well because if we're speaking about ourselves in that way, they might think like, oh, I'm not as, I suppose, toned as you or something like that. So now I need to do that. So that's another way that um, I suppose that works as well um, to influence our behaviour. Yeah, definitely, Megan. I think it's probably one of the most important parts as well. We often seek gratification and acceptance from others, but accepting mm. and, and gratifying ourselves is is quite rare, which when you think about it like that, it's like, well, we live in our body and we are the only person that follows us, us from birth till death. So why are we not, you know, appreciating our systems and appreciating mm. our body more? Yeah, it's a really, really interesting topic. Um yeah, 100% agree. Definitely. And I know we could speak for hours about that stuff and, and learning <laughs> how to accept your body, but I'm a firm believer that it is a process and it's a real personal journey. And and that's where I guess the likes of psychologists and, and counsellors and, and life coaches come in to give you that objective point of view and really help you see what you potentially uh, are missing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I suppose it just sort of challenges our cognitions as well. Um, and just helps us sort of think, why am I having those feelings and why do I sort of need that external gratification? Can I sort of find that gratification for myself and things like that? It really challenges those um, behaviours as well. Would you encourage people at home to ask themselves why to be able to develop these sort of new belief systems or, or, or self-acceptance? Would that be the first step? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a really important thing. And I've actually been reading a book at the moment about our negative emotions. Um, so I think we're really, we're not comfortable with being uncomfortable. Um, like when we experience negative emotions, whether that be a negative body image or things like that, we're not willing to take the time, create the space for ourselves and just figure out what those feelings and cognitions mean um sometimes we're very quick to just say i need to diet right now to fix this mindset whereas we don't sort of take the time to process um those emotions and i think it's a really good idea to just sort of create that space for yourself and figure out what those um, cognitions are trying to tell you and then how we can sort of take a step forward in um I suppose, alleviating some of those as well. So, so complex. We're going to take a, a little bit of a 180 into the topic that we're going to do, but it all come full circle at the end, guys. So stay with us. So I guess, <laughs> Megan, it's a, probably a good time to preface what the diet culture is and, and what yo-yo diets are and how we develop these sort of philosophies in regards to our nutrition. Mm, yeah, so I suppose diet culture is just a collective of societal beliefs around what a healthy diet is, um, like what we label as good foods and bad foods. And 
I suppose, thoughts and cognitions about, about weight and body types and things like that. I suppose that sort of sums up what diet culture is. Um, and I think it really maintains this yo-yo dieting. Um, yeah, when we start, we sort of get this really good feeling that we're doing things really well, but we might not have addressed the underlying cognitions about why we began in the first place. Um, and then we sort of get to the end and sort of just think, oh, I'm still feeling that way. And then it's just sort of this vicious, vicious cycling. Um, we sort of get that yo-yo effect where you go up feeling good and then down and then up and then down and yeah, so on and so on. Um, I think it really enables the diet industry as well. I think that's why it's such a big industry at the moment. Definitely me and being involved in the fitness industry for the past five years and, and prior to that going through the sort of diet culture, it's, mm. it's crazy how when you look back on it now, us humans, we, we put our weight above all else, like, and, and our weight is at the forefront of everything. And we disregard a lot of other potential health implications by addressing just our weight. And, and yes, weight is important, um, but it's only a small piece of the puzzle. I'm, I'm a big believer in that. And I feel like there's way more to the picture than just your weight. Yeah, I 100% agree. It's almost like, um, what's the word for it? that's like our purpose in life is to be a healthy weight, which is definitely not the case. Yeah, definitely. And obviously there's a lot of research nowadays that's coming out regarding your weight and how you can still maintain a healthy body weight without these diet cultures and going through these different diets. And I guess for those since home, we forgot to preface what a diet is. I'm sure you guys would have heard of like the keto diet, the low carb, high fat, um, shake diet, those guys, they're all what we're talking about in the diet culture umbrella. I guess anything that steers away from um, sustainability and creating long-term habits falls under that, that sort of diet culture umbrella. Yeah, absolutely. Digging deeper into into this sort of realm, what sort of health implications mentally can arise from having these sort of diet culture approaches for a prolonged period of time and, and recycling through different diets? Mm, I suppose it, it really creates unrealistic expectations in people's brains, I think. Um, and that sort of helps maintain those native cognitions we have surrounding um, weight and body image and things like that. Um, I suppose the cycling that we see in a lot of diets um, also gives rise to a lot of um, eating disorders as well, especially binge eating disorder. Um, I think what's really important to understand is that when we go through diets, often we're taking something out, whether that be carbs or fats or whatever it is, we're often removing something um, and we're often removing a really important fuel for our brains. And when we start to starve our brains, it really impacts our cognitions and um and decision-making processes as well. Um, and that frontal lobe, which is our rational um, thinking area, really gets deprived when we um, start restricting our diets too much. 
um, and it sort of impacts our ability um, to think rationally about our food choices and things like that. Um, but it really activates our survival systems as well. So when we are restricting our diet, our brain is just constantly thinking, I need food. What if I don't find food? I won't be able to sustain my life and things like that. So when we do find food, um, our brain just goes, give me all the food because I don't know when I'm going to find or when I'm going to have my next meal, which I think is a really important thing to highlight um, in terms of dieting and things like that. Yeah, I guess I can talk from personal experience, experiencing that me and I would be really restrictive from Monday to Friday when I was in the midst of my dieting phases and, and I'd, I'd eat about twelve to 1,500 calories on Monday to Friday and then Saturday and Sunday I'd, you know, sit, sit at the fridge and, and absolutely binge myself sick yeah. and, and consume it like without tracking probably four to 5,000 calories on those days. So complete deprivation and then binging on those days where I finally thought that, you know what, it's acceptable for me to eat on this given day. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And I think I've spoken about this before to a couple of um, my followers, I suppose, is this idea of cheat meals and um, guilty pleasures and things like that. Um, we're sort of just setting ourselves up for failure, I suppose, in those situations. Um, and they're complete oxymorons. Like we can't have we can't have pleasure in the presence of guilt. Um, it just doesn't make any sense. Mm. And I think you mentioned calorie counting there as well. Um, and I suppose that gives us a lot of control. Um, and especially in adolescence, that's something that we can have a large control over is our meals and our intakes and those numbers and things like that. Um, but then when we binge, we have this complete loss of control um, which can be really, really challenging um, in terms of cognitions and mindset and things, things like that. Yeah, definitely, Megan. Just taking a little like side trip away from our main topic. Do you think that that mm. sort of focus on control? I'm talking from personal experience here, looking yeah. back and reflecting on my own sort of mm -hmm. experiences. Do you think that that control aspect with counting calories comes from deprivation or lack of control in another area of your life? Yeah, definitely can. Um, and then one thing that some psychologists use is we sort of look at areas where you can have control over um, that aren't the calorie counting and things like that. So where in your life can you exhibit control that isn't over the numbers and the amount of calories that you're intaking? Um, that's quite a popular technique that some people um, sort of try and help um, people understand. Yeah, and it, it really steers away from actually listening to our body and, and the signs and symptoms that this great, amazing, complex system gives us, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. But also at the same time, sometimes it's not, we don't have this awareness that a lot of foods these days, especially processed foods and fast foods, are manufactured in a very specific way with this perfect balance of carbs and fats and sugars and things like that, that sort of bypasses some of the systems in our brains. Um, and those systems are the systems that tell us that we're full. Um, so when we eat fast food, foods and things like that, we find that we can eat and eat and eat. Um, 
that it's not we don't necessarily have this awareness of fullness um so i suppose it's sometimes not our fault in those situations um and the foods that are typically used in binge eating are those heavily processed foods um that do bypass those systems so we don't we just lose the awareness of when we are full and when we have had enough um, which is a really interesting um feature of that industry i suppose yeah it's crazy it's become almost like a, a science experiment to develop that correct balance <laughs> of, of fats and, and sugars to get past that sense of satiation satiation i can't even speak today i'm sorry guys um <laughs> which yeah it, it just bypasses all of our natural body systems and it's crazy I, it's funny i was watching a um a youtube video once on cadbury and how they manufacture their chocolate and it was behind the scenes footage about um this special factor in how they develop that sort of secret recipe quote unquote um yeah it's, it's incredible the the right amounts of fats and sugars to target that sort of pleasure in your brain and i guess going deeper it, it creates addiction towards those sorts of um feelings yeah. doesn't it yeah that's crazy i've got a youtube video on it <laughs> yeah i guess from holistic lifestyle point of view these things are not created when they're coming from whole foods like fruits and vegetables and all those sorts of things that enables our body to understand you know when we're full and obviously extract all of those nutrients which we can open up a whole different can of worms um, about the, the physiological effects that happens there but heading back into our sort of main discussion megan you mentioned earlier eating disorders and, and body dysmorphia for people at home that have never heard of these words or or maybe experiencing these signs and symptoms without even knowing them. What is the definition of an eating disorder and how is it diagnosed in clinic? Mm, so I suppose we use something called a di diagnostic and statistic manual, um, which is the DSM um, of mental disorders. And by their de definition, eating disorders are defined as um, a persistent disturbance of eating and eating related behaviours that result in the altered consumption or absorption of food that significantly impairs physical health or psychosocial functioning. Um, so with eating disorders, they're diagnosed through a um, psychologist or psychiatrist. And there's a very strict set of criteria um, that you need to meet in order to receive the diagnosis. Um, and within that criteria, we all also have a severity rating scale as well. So you might be very mild on the spectrum or you might be on the more severe or extreme end um, of the line as well. Um, so yeah, that's how they get diagnosed. You do need to see a mental health professional for those. Yeah, it's incredible hearing the um, clinical diagnosis of an eating disorder. And I guess working in the personal training realm and being immersed in the health and fitness realm, I see signs and symptoms of early onset eating disorders throughout everyday life. And it's, I guess, you know, you don't necessarily need to be diagnosed with an eating disorder to show those sorts of behaviors. And me talking from personal experiences, I was never diagnosed with an eating disorder throughout my, you know, sort of diet culture. But looking back on now, I 100% know that 
it played a huge role in my life without being diagnosed. What are some practical signs, Megan, or like without alarming people um, in this realm, what are some signs and symptoms from a practical setting that people um, may need to look, look out for? Um, there's a whole heap of different things. Um, I suppose speaking to a health professional, you really need to um, don't dive into that with them. Um, but I suppose in the definition that I read out, the main thing is that when it begins to impact, like significantly impact your physical or psychosocial functioning, um, that's a huge thing with mental health disorders across all of them, I suppose, when it starts to impact your life um, and become the forefront of your life. I think that's a really important thing to take note of. Um, and then I also for friends and family and people that you find support in, um, support in, I think it's really important to know that sometimes in approaching these situations, um, it can be quite alarming for the person because like we mentioned before, it can be the only control that they have in their life. Um, so you coming to them might threaten that control that they have over that. Um, and I think it's really important to know how to approach those situations as well. Um, so just saying that you're there for them and that you're not aiming to take away um, that aspect of control in their life and really support them in seeking the help that they need and then um, a psychologist psychologists will help them sort of process um those different things that are going through their brain yeah really really great advice there Megan I could not agree more and looking back on on my sort of behaviors in this realm and this is a zero judgment zone for anyone that is actually going through these behaviors this was just sort of my epiphany at that point in time talking from a personal point of view I remember I was counting calories at the time and I was chopping up cucumber and carrots and logging them into my fitness pal and my girlfriend looked yeah. over me and she's just like what are you doing you're you're counting mm. cucumber at that point in time and and I had been doing this for such a long period of time that it didn't even click to me that I was so mm. heavily focused on numbers and control in that aspect that I was counting calories for cucumber which is what 95 percent water um I can look back and yeah. laugh on it now but I didn't realize it at the time and I think the people around me sort of approached that situation really, really well in terms of not making me feel like I was doing the wrong thing. And I think that's what you mm -hmm. highlighted in that, that point there, Megan, as well. Yeah, I think it's a really important distinction. I think you mentioned um, it clicking for you as well, which is something that's really important. Like people not, might not be ready to hear the information yet if we approach it in a really, I suppose, aggressive way. Um, and then we sort of just have to support them to make those realizations on the, their own, which is a lot, it's a lot healthier um, and sustaining for those cognitions if they sort of figure them out on their own, because um, it can come as quite a shock and can cause a little bit of conflict if um, we sort of try and take that control away from them and just bombard them with information that they're just not ready for. Definitely, Megan. And for people that are um, support, like su supporting those people during this um, period of time, what are some practical tips that they can do to be able to promote that sort of balance and help them come to a realisation that is for them without the added sort of stress and anxiety with it? Mm, I suppose like 
we can always lead by example. Um, so we can try and understand what they're going through. We can do a little bit of research um, about their behaviours and cognitions and things like that and just really try and understand what's going through their mind um, and why they're doing it as well. I think that's something that we sometimes bypass. Like we might know that they do need a little bit more help and we can sort of encourage them to get that help. But I think sometimes before we take the step to suggest they do need help, it's really important for us to try and understand just what they're going through. Um, and that sort of says to the person as well, you're not alone. I really want to understand you. We're in this together sort of thing. Love that. Really, really good bits of advice there, guys. And once you've, like, say you've experienced these things and you're gone to seek that relevant help, the treatment plan is very highly personalised based on, you know, the severity. And you mentioned the spectrum before that you may be experiencing. What are some things that we can do to prevent these things from developing into um, potentially an eating disorder. I know social media plays a huge role in the development and there is so much research around the, the correlation of social media and the implications into eating disorders and body dysmorphia. But what are some practical things that, that we can do to prevent these from occurring? Mm, I suppose with eating disorders, there's so many different aspects that play into it and we can't always avoid it per se. Um, but we can certainly do things um, that make them more accepted and um, just make the language that we use a little bit more, um, I suppose, uh, a little bit more informed. Um, so I think before I was mentioning about how we speak to ourselves, um, and I think there's this really interesting movement on Instagram at the moment, especially about normalizing bodies, which I think is fantastic. Um, it's really nice to see um, and really encouraging to see just bodies being normalized. And I think the, um, the whole idea that no one is ever going to look the same is really important. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And social media, that's a whole other topic that we can um, we can open up a can of worms about. But the the role that that plays in in sort of developing belief systems and belief systems that aren't necessarily attainable for someone's life is is crazy. For example, I love the movement at the moment, like appreciating all sort of body shapes as well. I think it's fantastic because for so long we were sort of seeking um, like trying to achieve that sort of unrealistic body shape that is not necessarily for everyone in I'm talking about like bikini bodies and, and chiseled abs. Yeah. It's, it's not, there's not a one size fits all approach to this. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And I think when we say eating disorders as well, people have a very clear picture in their mind of what eating disorders are, um, which is definitely not the case. I think, a lot of the time we think it's that malnourished um, look, which is not always what an eating disorder looks like. There are so many different ways in which it can present and it's very individualized to the person. Um, yeah, I think that's a really important thing to note as well in terms of body image and things like that and what appears on Instagram. Yeah, definitely. And you mentioned before that it is a spectrum and people can be on different yeah. ends of that spectrum and, you know, how does 
you, you can't necessarily someone with an eating sort of doesn't necessarily have a look quote unquote mm. like yeah talking from personal experience for me i didn't have this necessary look that would fit the stereotype of an eating disorder but internally i was really really struggling at that point in time and and yeah i guess it, it's changing the stigma around how it can affect and who it can affect and it just doesn't discriminate yeah absolutely and i think a lot of the behaviors that are seen with eating disorders um are done in private as well um so i think normalizing these things and having conversations like this are very important in helping people feel like they're not alone and they don't need to hide um their eating habits and things like that i think that's really important diving a bit deeper into that megan why and why do you think and why does the what does the research say about us hiding our sort of eating disorders and why do we look to pursue those sort of habits in private and in secret is it a fear of judgment of others i'm sure you've um, done a lot more research than i have in this area but what what does the research suggest about why we do these sorts of things in, in private mm, i suppose it doesn't always have to be just on a clinical scale. It doesn't always have to be an eating disorder per se. It can be any eating habits that we find we might be hiding from others. Um, and I suppose um, with that, there's usually an underlying an emotion um, with those sorts of behaviours, whether that's shame or guilt or something like that, or hurt. Um, I think that's some of the reasons why people can feel compelled to hide those behaviours from others. And I think you mentioned fear of judgment as well, which I think is a huge one. Yeah, always digging deeper and there's always potentially an underlying reason why we do the things that we do. Mm, yeah, always, yeah. Love it. And I guess from a social media point of view, we've we've touched on how much that can influence someone's um, ability to change their habits, some for the good, some for the bad. What are some ways that we can immerse ourselves in positive reinforcing environments on social media and follow the things that, you know, make our hearts sing, for lack of a better term? Yeah, yeah and align with our values as well, I think. That's um, the word I was looking for before, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it's really important to know that your Instagram and social media is your space. That's where you go to find inspiration and influence and things like that. So don't feel bad in not having people on it, I suppose, that align with your values. Um, you're not in control of how people feel. So unfollowing someone who might be your friend or something like that, um, they may might take it to heart but at the end of the day you have no control of how they feel and i think creating a really positive environment for yourself um and i think not having shame in unfollowing someone who doesn't align with your values um is something that people need to be prouder of i suppose um yeah yeah great point there megan as well you you know, your social media is something that we are spending lots and lots of time on, 
um, these yeah. days. So creating that environment that is going to make you thrive and really align with what you believe and and all of your values is, is crucial because, you know, you're developing, there's so much um, research that suggests that you're developing your belief systems by what we see online because we're spending so much time on it, which is a fantastic thing. Don't get me wrong. Like the technology these days is, is incredible to be able to do all the things that we can do on on these platforms, but it's also comes with some, a big responsibility in terms of cultivating an environment that's going to make you thrive. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah. It's really important to be mindful of our social media and the environment that we have, um, that we're creating for ourselves. And I think we forget that we have a hundred percent control over, or maybe not a hundred percent because of the algorithm and um, things that might pop up <laughs> and things like that. But we have a large control of what we can see on our social media. Yeah, so so true. The algorithms are, are going nuts at the moment. I was chatting to my girlfriend's brother the other day. He's quietly immersed in the IT field, and we're talking about all the algorithms that are that are yeah. happening with the COVID scenario at the moment, and how everything. Mm. That, that mentions sort of like um, immune system and, and um, COVID-19 is coming up with like independent fact checkers and research and it's being censored. Yeah. The algorithms are crazy. Yeah. yeah, it's nuts, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Love it. But yeah, guys, I guess just to tie that in a bow, create an environment that you can thrive in and, and really understand what makes, you know, your your heart sing and what really aligns with your values. For example, if you're into, you know, health and fitness, there's no real, I guess I've got to be careful in saying this because there may be, it's very personalized, but follow, follow things that are going to align with those values, follow health and fitness pages within reason that are, you know, adopting (laughs) holistic practices and, and exercise regimes and things like that, that are going to inspire you to thrive. Yeah, and I think we can. We mentioned at the start that you're a student of life. So sometimes we might start following those people, but then we sort of grow out of that as well. So I think there's no shame in just continually evolving and just finding new ways to educate yourself and new people to follow and things like that. Um, I think there's no shame in that at all. Love it, Megan. Absolutely love it. And evolving is such a, a really, really good word and it summarises that perfect Perfectly. Now, Megan, we were speaking off air about this as well, and, and it's something that we do subconsciously and we don't necessarily see the implications that it can have long term and in that moment. And that's our language around like compliments and how we speak to people regarding certain issues. I guess where I'm heading with this is, is how our compliments can potentially reinforce bad habits. So p- to put it in a scenario for you, if you're someone that is experiencing these restrictive sort of regimes in terms of their eating, you're really restricting your calories, you're having 1200 calories a day, you're, and then you're going and getting these compliments from other people, those compliments can potentially reinforce those bad habits and, um, allow you to keep going with that sort of thing so how can we change our language to be able to not reinforce negative habits and really find out what they're doing before we reinforce the um the the habits themselves Mm, i think it goes back to the idea that i think there's a few quotes like you have no idea what other people are going through so always be kind i think it goes back to those Um, sorts of ideas like we don't know what people do when they go home and 
Um, we don't have a large insight into their lives sometimes. So we have to be really careful. But that said, if we do um, compliment people based on their appearance, I know we've all done it before, don't feel bad about it. It happens. It absolutely happens. But I think moving forward, we can be a bit more conscious of it um, and really choose our words wisely. Um, like you said, someone might be really restricting their diet and then might get dressed out for a cocktail a cocktail day with the girls and um or guys and they sort of say oh you look fantastic have you lost weight um and then they feel really good and then they go home and restrict and restrict some more and it can really influence those influence those behaviors a lot so i think we need to choose our words a little bit more wisely and be a little bit more conscious of it um, and just choosing our compliments in a way, uh, choosing like non-appearance related compliments, if that makes sense. So um, instead of saying, oh, it's, it's really great to see you. Um, you look fantastic. Have you lost weight? Just stop at, it's really great to see you. Um, that still makes a person feel really valued and seen um, and doesn't sort of, um, have words associated that might influence so influence those behaviours when they go home at the end of the day. Mm. Great point there, Megan. A thing that I do as well with people is ask them how they're feeling and without saying, oh, you know, like you said before, you look fantastic. It's so great to see you. Have you lost <laughs> weight? We can say, oh, great to see you. How are you feeling? What have you been doing like really bringing it back onto how they're feeling inside and how those sort of um, the behaviors that they are partaking in may be making them feel. Because if they're doing those restrictive behaviors and feeling shitty, but then getting those compliments, it almost mm -hmm. reinforces the bad behavior in the first place. So if we can really dive deep and ask someone how they're feeling, maybe they're not feeling so great. And then maybe we might be able to provide an insight into a better alternative to become more lifestyle related and promote longevity in that yeah. space yeah absolutely um and i think sometimes people are a little bit scared to ask how you're feeling um i know that our are you okay day is coming up on thursday this week as well um but i think it's really important to know that you asking that question can really alleviate so much burden of someone if they aren't feeling so good um and knowing that in that moment you don't have to be um, a therapist or anything like that. You're a friend um, and you're just there to hear what they have to say as well. Yeah. Often yeah. people aren't looking for the answer in that point in time. They're just looking for someone to, to listen and be all ears to them. Yeah, hundred um, percent. And we can be really, our words can be really powerful. Yeah. I don't think there's ever a more important time to have this discussion, Megan, because the whole global pandemic at the moment is rocking everyone and, and asking someone how they're feeling and really, you know, being all ears and being being immersed in what they have to say has never been so important with obviously mental health connotations are going through the roof from this situation. It, it's rocked the whole world. So providing that um, support network for someone to really listen can can brighten up someone's day. Absolutely. And I think, I know personally during this time, I have felt so incredibly connected with my family and friends. 
um, even more so when they share their bad days, I think it really validates it and um, just helps normalize that behavior. And I think this is the first time ever we've had to sit with our uncomfortable emotions, emotions and we have the space, we literally have the space to feel all of those. And I think it's changed a little bit at the moment. I think people are more willing to share their shitty situations and yeah, I just, I feel very grateful that a lot of my friends and family have chosen me to share that with. Um, yeah. I'm in exactly the same boat as you there, Megan. I find myself having longer conversations over the phone and we're picking up the phone a lot more and we're having conversations with people that last an hour. And I guess the, the ability of social media, it enables you to have, you know, a conversation that would typically be done in 10 to 15 minutes, but over the space of three days, because you're constantly just, you know, typing one response, three hours later, you're typing one response. And if you're to going to go and have coffee with someone, you would not do that. It would typically yeah. be over 15 minutes. So replicating that over technology is so, so crucial at this point in time. And I find myself having longer conversations with people about more in depth stuff, which is incredible. This, this time has really brought out some positive scenarios as much as there is so many negative things. I really feel like there's a lot of positives to take out of it as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's, it's a really interesting time, but I think a lot of good things are going to come out of it, whether you realize it now or not. Um, yeah, it's really interesting. I've seen a big shift in in the attitudes of people as well. Megan, I know a lot of more people are uh, even walking down the street. Everyone is talking to everyone and, and they're really trying to recreate that human connection again, which was, you know, being, being lost for so long. So it's really exciting to see. Yeah, I think it's great being out in the community and even with the face masks at the moment, we can't physically smile to people. So I think a lot of people have sort of gone to using their words to just say, you know, hey, I'm smiling at you sort of thing or hey, going like good morning. I think it's really, it's really cool to see. Definitely. I could not agree more. Now, Megan, you're doing some incredible things within this space and it's really evident being able to pick your brain today and, and really understand <laughs> what happens on a, like a cellular level behind the habits and the behaviors that we adopt i'd love to know and i'm sure all the listeners would love to know what your main message is and what are all the things that you know what makes you tick and why do you do the things that you do um i think i'm just a student of life i'm obsessed with learning new things and i'm obsessed with like a holistic um approach to mental health and wellness um i think it's a really important thing and I think we're going to see a lot of um, new businesses arising um, that approach health and wellness in a more holistic way. Um, yeah I'm just I've got so much passion about my topic um, and I think that's what really makes me tick. I'm just really excited to learn everything and even at work I pick the brains of all all the psychologists and health professionals that work there. Um, I just love it. <laughs> so so evident through everything you're doing i love that quote student of life because we all are students of life and we can never absolutely. know enough yeah absolutely <laughs> love it me where can people get in contact with you and really be immersed in the the content that you are sharing um so my business page on instagram is at the conquer co 
Um, so that's the main one where I post a lot of my content and I'll always reply to messages. Um, so yeah, please feel free to hit me up and I'll be on the other end of it. I'll have those in the show notes for you guys. Megan, thank you so much for your time today. It was really, really awesome. Thank you so much for having me. I really loved it. Well, friends, what an episode that was. It was so awesome to be able to really unpack how the brain works. It's such a complex topic and I was so fortunate enough to sit down with Megan this week on the show. Guys, don't forget to leave a rating and review for the show on iTunes and let us know what you thought by screenshotting the cover and posting it on socials or reaching out on social media. That's all from me, guys. I hope you have a wonderful week and I'll see you next time.